Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. Hello, my podcast friends. I hope you're healthy and social distancingly cozy as you listen to this. Like a lot of people, one of the side effects for me of this social experiment we're living through has been a desire to reach out to people. So I decided to touch base with a few of my former guests and see how they are doing. I've interviewed some really smart and interesting people, I hope you'll agree, and I was curious to hear what they had to say about the pandemic, both in terms of how it's affecting us now and also what it might have to tell us about the future. At first, my plan was to conduct some short interviews and stitch them together into a single episode, but I found that I enjoy the informality of these chats and that you might too, so I'm going to publish them as a series of short episodes. To begin, I'm going to share with you my conversation with Doug Tallamy, who was my guest in the first and the 17th episodes of this podcast. If you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to go back and check those out first. As most of you probably know, Doug Tallamy is a professor of entomology at the University of Delaware and the author of Bringing Nature Home and, more recently, Nature's Best Hope. As a biologist and someone who often raises caterpillars, Tallamy has what he admits is a somewhat bleak outlook on the pandemic. Anytime you jam a lot of bodies together, it means the transmission of any disease is really easy. But he's also taking time to tend to his garden and enjoy nature at home. All right, I think we're on. All right. Okay. So thanks for talking with me again. Sure. It was strange putting out our last interview after the whole coronavirus thing had hit, but luckily we were discussing something that does have some application these days. Yeah, that's right. Gives you something to do at home. (laughs) That's right. So, in fact, a lot of my friends have been asking me for gardening advice. People are gardening vegetables a lot. Seed catalogs are running out and so on. So, so first of all, tell me how you're doing. Are you healthy, hopefully, and and safe and at home? Oh, yes, yes. We're fine. We're very much at home. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, but, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, this is the first spring I have been home in years, and I'm enjoying that, so. Oh, that's good. Yeah, the, the spring is a, is a big consolation for me these days as well. What kinds of things are growing in your garden these days? I'm just looking out the window. We've got our first flocks blooming um, just today. Our bloodroot has come and gone. Got a few trout lilies coming up. It's been a cool, wet spring, but it's warm today and things are starting to pop. The cherry leaves are popping out. Oh, that's exciting. So, it's moving so, along. so you're yeah. a couple of weeks ahead of us, it sounds like, because the bloodroot just bloomed in my garden. Oh, okay. Um, I don't have trout lily, although I see it in the woods here. It hasn't emerged yet. So we had a brief exchange by email and you said that your outlook on this situation is a bit bleak. <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but I, I, I would like to hear more. So you have the biologist's perspective, I imagine. Right, right. Yeah. Um, a, a pandemic or any, any you know, rampaging disease through a population is very common when that population is large and stressed. Uh, and, and we are. Uh, we're living in parts of the world that can't sustain us. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. We pull it off marginally because we can move resources around. But a lot of this is hard for the U.S. to appreciate because we live in such a rich country. We've got so many resources. Uh, But if you look at the entire planet, the human population is at least three and a half times 
larger than the planet can sustain. And by sustain, I don't mean for the next five years, I mean essentially forever without wrecking everything else. I mean, we're in the sixth grade extinction because there's so many of us taking the resources that everything else needs. And of course, we need those other species to run our ecosystems. So we call it above the carrying capacity, and it's a nasty place to be. Lots of bad things happen. So we've got a pandemic, and people have been predicting this for a long, long time. Now it's here, so there really should be, be no surprise. That's the, that's the bleak side of it. Uh, but, you know, there, there are some benefits, I guess, forcing people to slow down. We have a less frenetic life. We're not running all around the planet. So gas, gas prices down. Lots of good things happening in terms of climate change because we are simply using fewer fossil fuels. As I said, I, I'm getting to enjoy uh, a slower pace in, in the natural world right in my yard, and I haven't been able to do that in years. So that's a selfish perspective, but I am enjoying it. There's, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I struggle with, like, how do you balance the terrible news that I feel some responsibility to take in for various reasons with you know, the joy of everyday life. And it, it, it's right, the same. It's right. always the same on some level, but it's just exaggerated now. But I, I want to, so going back to your, what you said about population or overpopulation, you said we're at about three and a half times carrying capacity. How does something like that get measured? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, and that's an old figure, actually. I remember Wilson saying that about 20 years ago. Um, don't ask me. Uh, that is not my research, but uh, I guess they're looking at the, you know, the resources required to keep our societies above the poverty level, you know, so you don't have starvation and minimize conflicts and all of those things. You put it together and that this is what they come up with. So I do not know how they, they measure it. I know that a lot of a lot of non-scientists will, particularly economists, will say, oh, no, we can we can support, you know, 20 billion people, no problem. And of course, they're not looking at the ecological ramifications of cramming that many people into a space um, when they when they say that. So these are these are it's a pretty common figure out there on the web from ecologists. If you're really interested in how it's calculated, you could talk to Paul Ehrlich from Stanford or Gretchen Daly from Stanford. That's the type of thing that they they talk about all the time. Okay, I might do that. So you said that. Disease is something that comes with overpopulation. Are there examples of that among other species that jump to mind? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you can, I, I'm rearing caterpillars all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I do that for fun. I also do it for my research. And you, you always have limited space. You've got these little containers and everything. And you get an egg mass that hatches. You've got uh, 100 caterpillars. And the, the thing you have to worry about immediately is, the crowding effect, there's plenty of food. I change the food all the time, but there's so many little bodies um, in close proximity to each other, which doesn't happen for most species in nature. And it is very difficult to pull it off without a disease breaking out, um, some, usually a fungus or a bacterium. So that, you know, that's just a, a close to home example happening all the time. But it's very common in you know, rodent colonies. Anytime you jam a lot of bodies together, it means the transmission of any disease is really easy. Right now, we, I don't know if we boast, but uh, we know that at least in the U.S., 82% of our population lives in cities. Well, that means 82% of us are in very close contact with each other. Look at look what happens when we get on a subway or a bus or an airplane. 
or in just an airport. I mean, we were we are jammed together. We're in restaurants. We're standing in lines. We spend a lot of our time really close to other other individuals. So if you're a disease, you're in heaven because you can easily jump to a new host um, under circumstances like that. In the past, we lived in small bands, um, you know, usually close relatives, and they, you know, one more 20, 30 people. Um, so if a disease broke out and ran through that that clan, even if it killed everybody, that's the end of it. The disease is gone because it's an isolated clan and it's not interacting with other clans very much. But today we're so interconnected that when when that happens, then it spreads all over the world. That's a that's a pandemic. Hmm. So that's a, it's a conundrum of sorts because ecologically, one of the advantages of cities is that we're less spread out, so that leaves more room for other animals. And yet, it seems like cities, in some ways, contribute to the risks not just for ourselves but but for other animals as well. I'm thinking I'm sitting here in in my village. <laughs> so in village and thinking maybe that's what we need to return to, you know, so yeah. like a modern form of a medieval village. I don't know. It's it's an interesting conundrum, right? Uh, it, it is. And what you said at the beginning sounds good on paper where we're in, you know, we're in cities and that leaves a lot of space uh, for other things. The trouble is when you look at our cities and you look at the areas outside of our cities, it's either another city right away or it's this this megalopolis of suburbs. I mean, you know, I'm on the East Coast, so from Boston all the way down to Richmond, <laughs> you know, it, it's not a paved city, but it is high density uh, the whole way with very few open spaces outside of that. And those areas used to be all all farmland at this point. So even the areas outside of cities, we're not doing a good job about leaving them for, for other species. It sounds good. And if we did uh, a better job of that, um, I would be a lot happier. And so would those species. but. We tend to use those spaces for our own um, use, either farming or for entertainment or for airports. You know, the, the Denver airport is twice the size of Manhattan. Nobody's living there, so it's not even counted, but it is occupied space. And and um, that's the way it is here on the East Coast. I forget where you are, Nicole. Where? I'm in Westchester County, um, yeah, about okay. an hour well, north you're... of New York City. Yeah. You're you're in a nice area, but you're close to it. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an interesting place to be because it's sort of, you know, certainly in terms of the pandemic, I mean, Westchester was one of the centers early on because there's so much commuting between here and New York City. Um, right, right. But there are also a lot of natural spaces around here. So in that sense, it feels very different, you know. Right, right. It is it is a good model. That's a that's a very nice place. And it's and it's a good model that uh, I wish everybody, every place would follow yeah. as opposed to the, to the, you know, the, the strip mall alternative where nobody's living there, but it's all, it's all junk anyway. Yeah. We have a riot of birds going on uh, this spring, which is making me very happy. I must say, I'm hoping that people are connecting with the natural world a bit more, that that's one of the things that's going on. People are taking more walks. So perhaps they're taking time to tune in a bit as well. I'm I'm hoping so too. There's there's a lot of research that talks about the the benefits of doing that. Back to that conundrum though, you get all these people who are supposed to stay at home. They're living in an apartment in a city. Where are they supposed to go interact with nature unless they unless they break the rules and get out? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's tough. It's, it's tough. Yeah. So in that sense, I live in a paradise. You know, I can follow the rules, and all I have to do is go to my front or backyard, and I'm there, and that's that's great. 
Yeah, no, that is a lovely thing. So I imagine you're teaching. Are you teaching remotely these days? Yeah, Zoom. <laughs> yeah. How's that going for we, you? Oh, it's going. You know, the, <laughs> the, kids, the kids are very tolerant. It's so different for me. Yeah, I'm just a little bit grumpy about it. Um, yeah. Teaching, teaching is interacting with, with people. When you teach by Zoom, I'm sitting there talking to myself for an hour and 15 minutes. And I mean, really talking to myself, I've got to mute the kids. They've got to take their videos off so that uh, there's enough bandwidth. I have no idea whether I'm communicating effectively or not. And for some reason, I just find it so much harder. Um, I'm stumbling over my notes and, you know, fooling with all the, the, the electronics. And it is not a satisfying experience. And, yeah. And, uh, Maybe I'll get better at it, but uh, so far, not not too happy. And now everybody, I've had all my, you know, my talks are canceled and they'll say, well, let's do it remotely. So, oh, mm. my goodness, you know. <laughs> yeah, not quite the same thing. Yeah. Not even close. Not even close. I'm dealing with the homeschooling challenge, which is uh, <laughs> a whole other kettle of fish, <laughs> yeah, as it yeah. were. <laughs> so how do you get some solace? You step outside? I sure do. Um, so it, not only am I getting to enjoy the spring, but we have 10 acres and it has been a long time since I've managed it the way it ought to be managed. So I'm, just, I'm picking at that. I, you know, I'm, um, I'm clearing things that need to be cleared. Cindy and I are, we're always fighting the invasives, but uh, we've got a terrible Japanese stilt grass problem now. And um, so I found with a three-pronged claw, I can rake up the dead thatch from last year. All the zillions of little guys are coming up, but um, you know maybe I can do a little little weed whacking or try to control it without herbicides. But, you know it it takes it takes constant input, and and uh, in the past several years, I just haven't been around to do that. Been going downhill. So in taking breaks, I'm I'm trying to be productive at the same time. Mm, that sounds nice. Yeah, I'm I'm getting some gardening in too. Do you have sort of as a, as a last note? Do you have any advice for people who may have listened to our our last conversation, for example, and want to take advantage of this time to introduce some native plants and so on, but are limited in terms of not being able to go to a nursery, say, yeah. what are, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I suggested in the episode that they might try and order some things online, Yeah, but I yeah. don't, I don't know how accessible those things are these days. Uh, they're pretty accessible. Uh, that's a good alternative right now. Okay. Um, you know, because because that's another thing that's canceled all over the place. are plant sales. Um, right. But you know, one one thing uh, it, it depends again on how much property you have. But moving things around can be really effective. So a lot of people say, "Well, I don't, you know, I don't know where to get a, a young oak tree, for example." Yet there's a a first year seedling coming up in a flower bed where you don't want it permanently. But you, you dig it up before it sends out that big uh, taproot and move it to where, you know, add it in a, in a place where you've got too much lawn. Um, and you didn't have to go anywhere to do that. You know, some, some squirrel planted it for you. And, and uh, so look around, look for opportunities like that. There's always things coming up in beds where you don't want them and, and move them to where you, you do want them. That's a good idea. And also, you know, I would suggest that people who aren't familiar learn to be better at recognizing different plants. So for instance, white wood aster is one that comes up a lot of its right. own accord around here. And I've told some friends of mine not to weed that one out. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. So that, that can be something too, sort of more, more uh, informed weeding practices. <laughs> yeah. 
And, you know, with our with our cell phones and all of the ID opportunities online, we can get almost anything identified pretty quickly without going anywhere. Just post that picture and somebody will tell you what it is in just a few minutes. Do you have one you prefer? I know iNaturalist is a very popular one. Do you have a particular app or website that you go to? Um, iNaturalist is is a good one. It's getting better every every day. Uh, more and more people are using it. A lot of times I'm trying to identify uh, a moth that I get at a sheet or something. So Bug Guide is, is pretty good in that mm, sense. That's good to know. Um, there's a, a group called the Moth Photographers Workshop out of uh, Mississippi that has pictures of live or pinned moths from all over the country and their the maps of their distributions and everything else and uh, it's huge i mean we've got got over 12,000 species of, of moths so the big you have to you have to get used to using it and being able to to pinpoint what you're looking for but um i spent a lot of time on on that website as well oh that sounds like fun that that strikes me as a great project for kids as well oh yeah um, yeah learning to identify different insects. Well, thanks so much, Doug, for taking a little bit of time to chat with me. Um, You're welcome. I was interested to hear your perspective. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk to uh, three or four other former guests. You know, it, it just seems it's such it's an unusual situation, <laughs> obviously, what's going yeah. on right now. Um, yeah. Although the pe- I, pessimist in me feels like this is not necessarily a once in a lifetime thing, the way yeah. some people are saying. But uh, I was going to say, I hope it's unusual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, 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 it does give us an opportunity for reflection. So who knows? Maybe right. maybe right. it can press some sort of reset button. Well, there is, there is a bright side to everything. We, we just have to look a little harder this time. Look a little harder. Yes, indeed. Coming up, I'll have similar chats with former guests Marcia Bjornrud, Amy Hall, and Brian Skarstad. I'm also going to be talking to Brian Francis Slattery about his post-apocalyptic novel, Lost Everything. Be safe at home, and I hope you can take some time to enjoy the natural world. I'll be back soon. <laughs>